1: Interesting, I was just talking to my parents about this. I don't feel at home here in my hometown, and I haven't for a long time. New York, above all places in the world, is the one place I feel more at home than anywhere else. And that's even more so than when I'm in Egypt, by the way, right? I feel at home in Egypt to a certain extent, but I can be more me in New York than I can be in Egypt. And I consider my Egyptian identity and roots, traits, language, despite that, New York is more home to me than anywhere else. Hi. My name is Saif Hamid, and I'm a modern minority.
0: Welcome to Modern Minorities.
2: This is a show about work and life, told through the lens of what makes each of us different.
0: I'm Sharon Lee Tony, a Chinese-American girl born and raised in New York City.
2: And I'm Raman Segal, an Indian-American boy who came from Alabama with a banjo on my knee.
0: Through conversations with some really interesting people, we uncover the stories, perspectives, and often unspoken truths about how our guests uniquely experience the world.
2: It doesn't matter where you're from the color of your skin or who you love we're all minorities somehow but we're no one's model minority
0: this is a show about all of you for all of us today we had a
2: chat with my pal Saif hamid safe is a ad tech executive dj musician Bow tie wearing gentleman who I met on a rooftop in San Francisco, even though we both work in New York. And we've had many a chai comparing notes on job and kids. And so I really wanted to pick his brain and unpack what it was like being an Egyptian American.
0: Yeah. And Safe grew up an Egyptian kid in Ohio, which. To me, it sounds like that'd be a kind of an interesting dynamic. I mean, my own childhood was being around people very much like me, you know, Chinese. Yeah, you a Chinatown little, girl. Yeah, little Chinese girl growing up in and around Chinatown. Everybody outside of my, like, my family still looked like me. And so I'm just wondering, Ramin, you grew up in Alabama, where you were probably one of the only brown kids in your school. What was that like?
2: Yeah, I was expecting... A little bit similar and a little bit different from what Saif had to say. And when my folks moved to Alabama, there were 10 or 15 Indian families, and they weren't all from the same part of India, didn't speak the same dialect. But it's the kind of story where you look each other up in the phone book. One of my parents' oldest friends, the dad was a cardiologist, and he was making the rounds when my mom, I think, was having me. And he saw an Indian name and went in and introduced himself. Literally, that's how Indian... Like My best friend, they moved to Alabama when I was... Thirteen and mm-hmm. same thing. They looked up their last name in the phone book when they moved to Alabama, and they found another family with the same last name. And they called them like, "Hey, we're the Sings, and we're moving to Alabama." And they're like, "Oh, we're going to these other people's house." That happened to be our house that night because the other operating thing, and I think safe related this, the families you kind of got together with like little dinner parties here and there, mm-hmm. and a little bit of religion, but more culture, right? Where you listen to the music, you eat the food, and. Like the culture survives in these little enclaves where you wear the outfits, you listen to the music on the weekends and go over to each other's houses. And I feel like safe was kind of part of that community as well in Ohio. And we don't have that for my kid. Like, I don't know if there's a group of Chinese Indian people that hang out. And we try to have some friends that have an Indian parent or a Chinese parent, even if it's mixed or both Chinese. Mm -hmm. But I'm glad I didn't grow up in this massive Atlanta, Houston, Newark, Indian community because I like the intimacy. Those 10 to 15 uncles and aunties are like family, you know?
3: Yeah.
2: And now there's like a couple hundred, right? And so it's not the same anymore, but we don't have that. We have a bunch of close friends, but they don't all know each other. Like right. those 15 Indian families or those 25 or 50 Egyptian families.
0: Yeah. We've tried to find that. I remember when- I hanging heard... with the black Chinese community? Is that what yeah. you did? Yeah, I really did. So when my my older son was born- that was actually kind of my immediate too, because even though I did grow up in an area with a lot of Chinese people, we still had maybe four families that my parents were really good friends with. And so same thing, we'd get together. Our parents would all play mahjong together on the weekends and all the kids were about the same age. we just like play until we would pass out because our parents would like
2: Staying know. up, drinking tea, would, or whatever. Yeah, yeah, they
0: would be up till all hours of the night, and that was my childhood too. And I did try to find some Blasian families, looking for community groups or associations, or even Facebook groups of Black and Chinese mixed race couples and families. And I don't think anything like that exists because Does I doesn't need to though. I don't think it needs to. Does it? I don't know. I don't know. But I wonder if, like, if it did what would our traditions be, right? Because like-
2: well, my sister's Blindian. Uh, her kids are
0: Indian. <laughs> so, you, know. you know, my I have a friend. So they're also mixed race, Chinese and Indian. We, we call them Chindian. So the fact that you- Oh, oh no, because it's black and Indian. Got it, Blindian. Yep, Sorry. No, my family's Chindian. My family's Chindian. Right, you're Chindian. And then your sister's family is Blindian. Got it. <laughs> So maybe I should introduce you and your wife to my other Chindian friends. I don't, friends. You guys, I don't want friends. You guys can create your own little enclave and tell me how that goes.
2: No, I'm, I'm old and cranky. I don't need right. friends. I'll just interview them <laughs> on the podcast.
0: Well, and back to safe. We
2: recorded this, gosh, back in May when we were all still figuring out this pandemic. And him, his wife, and their kids had just left New York to be with his parents in Ohio. And now he surprisingly, like you, moved to LA, which... Similarly, it has to do with the music and entertainment scene. One thing like I always kind of knew about him when we started to become friends outside of work is his passion for music and music production. And I mean, that's in your house too with your husband, kind of balancing the day job and the passion for music.
0: Yeah. Well, in my house, it's the day job and the night job, right? <laughs> so it's all in one. I mean, he's an overall entertainer. We're going to group it under that. So it's acting and music and all of it. But listening to Safe Story, though, it was interesting to hear passion for music, having a nine to five, like completely a day job, day job, like corporate, corporate, corporate And kids, job
2: and kids. And
0: kids. And then trying to do both the DJ and the music production thing was, you know, I, I just feel like it's hard to have anything outside of that. And the fact that he's got this other passion that's really starting to take off for him is great.
2: Yeah, so get ready for a really fun conversation with our friend Safe. Safe, thanks for coming on the pod thanks for having me. How are things in your escape from
1: New York lifestyle They're great in just about always. We have more space. my kids have more space we have help so the craziness of the hour to hour meeting to meeting you know work overlap, trade-off who's schooling who's not schooling is just diminished actually so like there's a big bucket of stress gone, which is nice so we're enjoying it. I miss New York though I miss New York even when I'm in New York actually i'm I don't know about you guys how you feel about that but Even when I'm in New York, I miss it sometimes.
0: It's different now, you know?
1: Yeah. Yeah, very. How long do you think the difference will remain?
0: Some people say forever, because I think this has changed the way that everyone relates to each other and how businesses are thinking about operating. So it's hard to say. I've actually spoken to someone who's down in Texas, and Texas has reopened, and he was telling me about his experience in a restaurant, because that's one thing I miss a lot. I really miss sitting down in a restaurant and being at a table with friends, and he was telling me that he had gone out for a meal the other day with his wife, and after that, he, he decided he wasn't going to go out to eat for a while, because even though they were in the restaurant together, everybody was spaced really far apart. The tables were there, but the customers were seated really far apart from each other, and the wait staff was wearing masks and gloves and they had to have their temperatures taken when they checked in with the hostess. Just so different. So I don't know, safe. I'm not sure when it'll ever go back to normal or if this is just yeah, gonna yeah. be the way it is.
1: Yeah, no, I, I agree. I'll share a story on the restaurant front. So as as we were pulling into the Chagrin Falls vicinity, Chagrin Falls is this this is a small town, eastern suburb of Cleveland where I, I grew up, my parents still live here. And my brother, actually, they, they all still live in my hometown. We were on this country-ish road, I'll call it, divided highway, and drove by one of my favorite barbecue spots from when I was a kid. And this is the first clear sign on our way into town that the whole concept of the pandemic was different here. So on the patio of this, it's called Blazin' Bills, this barbecue spot, it was just jam-packed with people. No distance. I mean, like people literally on top of one another, No masks. And honestly, we've seen enough of that to just make you say, really? There's no sense of pandemic here? Now, in stores and stuff, and people are wearing masks and whatnot. But the restaurant thing, it's very different here, interestingly, and kind of scarily, honestly.
2: So, Safe, you've got a bit of a reputation in the industry, quote unquote, that a lot of us are in. A good one, to be clear. Can you tell us a story about growing up in Chagrin Falls? What was it like being a kid that? had a funny name
1: where you were. Yeah. Let me just paint a picture of Chagrin Falls. I'll first say I had an amazing childhood. I'm very fortunate and and blessed to have grown up the way I did with the resources I had and good school, good friends, all that stuff was great. Chagrin Falls, small town. I graduated with 112 people, just to give you a sense of size. Now that's on the smaller end of, of the class size spectrum, but small town, everyone knows everyone kind of thing. There's generational presence. So a lot of kids I went to school with, their parents went to Chagrin, or even their grandparents went to Chagrin and graduated from Chagrin and still live here, but super homogenous. An indication of that is, so my, my younger brother, his complexion's a bit darker than mine, more on the darker side of the Egyptian kind of spectrum of complexion. And he was like the second or third darkest kid at our school. There was, I think, maybe two black kids, us, and that's it. There was literally no other real diversity so we had that, but I grew up simultaneously in a pretty strong and diverse, and by di- diverse here I mean nationally. So countries where people came from, Arab and Muslim community, and so that was always a really good counterbalance. And we were we actively engaged in the community. We we were really close with a few, like a small group of families who, ultimately, I call them cousins now. Their family, literally. Yeah, you know, we've we've talked about this. So I had that balance, but it was, look, it was great from a school perspective, great from a extracurricular perspective. I had fun. I was mischievous. I got into trouble. I, had, I still have really good friends from those days. I'm still connected with people, but it was almost two separate worlds. They did cross, right? And so I was a source of, I think, exposure to diversity for a lot of the, the, the kids in my school in a very good way, right? And so it, it was all love, really. Like, I have to be honest. It was, I had a good childhood here.
2: Yeah, I get what you're saying about. It. it was almost like a bubble in a bubble, right? In Alabama, to your point, small town, small suburb where I was, but the Indian community was at the time 15 or 20 families and I literally had called one of the aunties and she's an auntie, not just in title, but like she's like family to me the other day cuz my mom's birthday is coming up. But it's like extended family because it's a handful of people with the background in the community. And but there was always this like weirdness when you'd have to go to like an Indian event and wear the outfit and then stop at Walmart to pick up flowers or something on the way did were there any you talked about clashes is the wrong world where the kind of the, the two worlds intersected did you have any of those moments what were those like for you in in ohio
1: intersected in any way good bad funny yeah awkward. anything let's see i certainly had along the lines of what you're you're talking about like a lot of instances in which you're out or at an event, a dinner party or whatever in the community, by community, I mean the the Arab community. And that's got its own vibe, right? Very clean. What is that vibe? What is that vibe? Clean, I guess, is is the best way relative to.
2: I have no idea what that means, buddy. (laughs) What what I
1: would, well, I'll I'll come back to. Relative to then going out and partying, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, got it, got it. With with a high school crowd, for example. So you always had that cross or that dichotomy, if you will. The interesting thing is you never knew who in the community got down like that. It was always, at least mentally for me, the way I framed it. Anything related to partying was off limits in the Arab community. It wasn't even like a subject that was broached. You just assumed for the most part that that was where everyone just stayed in line. Mm
3: -hmm, mm
2: -hmm.
0: What's the boundary of partying? Would it be if someone has a beer? You know what I mean? What's the threshold of what would be acceptable? And then what wouldn't be? Or was it completely like you're either dry, like you don't touch anything, you drink water, essentially, or you're like doing heavy drugs?
1: I don't know, honestly. I mean, I wasn't crazy, to be clear. Like, I wasn't crazy in high school. I've never been crazy on that front.
0: Well, I heard you got into some trouble in seventh grade. <laughs> I did. Tell us about that. I did.
1: Yeah, I like that pivot, actually. Let's move to that. That's more fun. So my first detention ever in school, seventh grade, French class. This is so bad. It's very docile, but it's one of the worst things I've ever done in my own mind. My mom is the teacher. So sitting front row in my mother's French class with a class of 20, 25 other kids. And the class is about to end. And at the time I was in this silly phase of having my watch set to the school's clock and always knowing exactly when class would end. And there was like six or seven seconds left in the class. And my foolish, disrespectful, young ass, am I allowed to say that on the show?
2: I don't know. Language. I heard your community was very clean. Yeah. 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 I'm not yeah, sure difficulty. about that. Right. I'm, I'm calling your mom, dude. Gonna, do, it, do, it, do it. Do it. May, may have the
3: upstairs. She
1: may have the room bug. Anyway, I just sit there, look at my watch and count down. The seven seconds left in class instead of answering the question. Boom. Instant detention. So well-deserved. And obviously that put me in line, both at home and in class from that point on.
2: How do you live with yourself?
1: We've gotten over it. I'm prototypical brown Egyptian, whatever, fill in the blank, mama's boy. You
0: are a model minority.
1: I guess in that sense, yeah, to the extent that's part (laughs) of the definition, yes. Yes, I am. Well,
0: what what did you want to be
2: when you grew up? And then contrast that with what did mom and dad want you to be when you grew up?
1: From a pretty early age, I've always been lucky to have a pretty clear line of sight into what I wanted to do. Music was my first love. Well, I grew up listening to music. Neither of my parents are musically inclined or, or or rather talented, but we listened to a lot of music. It was always on in the car, different genres. There's very deep appreciation and culture around the old, the greats of Arabic music, Omar Khalsum, Fayruz, Abdul Halim, artists like that. And I grew up hearing all that while also hearing things like the Beatles and the Moody Blues. And a lot of the music that my dad, both my parents, they actually met and lived in London for seven or eight years between Egypt and the States. So I had a very diverse exposure to music through them. And then growing up, hip hop, pop, hip hop really was my, really my first love in terms of the music I gravitated towards. I played the saxophone in grade school, continued on until high school, and then quit the saxophone and then started a hip hop group with my cousins. I think we were the first Egyptian American hip hop group, actually almost totally Egyptian, two Egyptians and one half Egyptian, half Korean. So I always knew I wanted to do music. It was always number one for me. Growing up, I had my sights set toward music. Coming out of high school, we had our group. I would put toured in quotes. We did a few shows in the Midwest. We had a manager here locally. We worked with a producer. We gave it a real shot. And you're talking like 20, 25 years ago now, things were very different then. There were no streaming platforms. The internet really wasn't in any way, shape, or form applicable the same way it is today. So this was real on the ground, flyers, go pitch the radio stations, print CDs, all that, press kits, and so on. A lot of that stuff still exists, but it's very different now. So anyway, we toured a little bit. We put out music. I went to college. I'm two years older than them, school-wise. My cousins slash groupmates. And the divide between, right, you're in high school and you're in college. And I went to college at Miami University of Ohio, in Oxford, Ohio, Southwest Ohio. So just the time and space and different, you're just in a different place, right? High school versus college. Separated us a little bit and and slowed down the group approach to music. But I took on production. I took on DJing. Did both full time in college while while studying, of course, and working a campus job. And then graduated college, I majored in marketing. Instead of going the traditional route, well, I'll put traditional in quotes. Well, Steve, I want to
2: jump in. You did the music thing and you took it really seriously. Where were your parents with that? Were they like, yeah, go ahead?
1: No, supportive. So dad was a doctor, mom was a teacher, and I never had the pressure that most of us have to be a doctor or an engineer or a lawyer, right?
2: Yeah, but. That's one thing, but it's like, I have this running joke. was like, yeah, my kid's not going to be a liberal arts major. It's okay to go study business. That's okay. But it's to go and take, because I remember I wanted to be an artist when I was like, my dad was an architect. And I was like, why can't I be an artist? Or at least an architect like you, dad, why'd you become an architect? Didn't you love art? And he was like, well, because I didn't get into med school. That's why I'm an architect. And you don't want to be an architect. And here's why. Go study computers, go study engineering, and ultimately go be a doctor. And I'm not trying to understand the pressure to not become a doctor. That makes sense. But the willingness for your parents to be okay to go into music and spend so much time and energy in music, I applaud your interest in it. But I just, your parents were cool with that? That's so
1: cool. Like, <laughs> they were cool with it on the condition that, like, I still went to college. I got a marketing degree. Yeah. And I, okay. was, I was geared to pursue a quote unquote traditional career in the event. Oh, so or this the, was on just the assumption like, that was they had, yes,
0: hobby. Yeah, music didn't
1: work out. I mean, they viewed it that way, but they've always, both my parents actually are very entrepreneurial by nature. And so they certainly supported that aspect of it, that it was not just a hobby, but a hobby that we tried or I tried to do something a little more real with and structured with. Yeah, so it wasn't like go skip college, go just move to New York and, or, or LA or wherever and, and take on music. It was. But you got the degree and then you wound up doing stuff like that. Yeah. Well, I had to, right? I couldn't not give it the shot at that point in time. And Why? So, so Wait, what does that mean? Like just because things had momentum? It's just what I wanted to do. Period. Yeah. And it, DJing was very much, it was a full, like I was DJing four or five nights a week in college. It was a full-time job. We ran it like a business. It was lucrative. It was very real. And so my intentions when my plans were to take that and parlay it into building a label. And so I graduated, incorporated a record label and a publishing company. So the Desert Crew, my group, we produced our first full-length album. We had put out EPs prior. We produced and released a full-length album. I produced and and released a full-length solo album, Electroacoustic Mediterranean Lounge is, is the style I dubbed it, and really went on to give it a shot. And then moved to Columbus, Ohio, signed an artist there. Miss Megna was her name. Now she goes by Megna. She was in what was then the budding urban Desi scene. But yeah, pop R&B, Indian American. And along with my co-producer and, and label mate, we signed her and then produced music, set up a tour, did the promo. Again, we did it the real professional way, if you will. What
2: years were these? When was this happening? Early 2000s?
1: So graduated college oh three, incorporated that summer and in the year following. So 03, 04, 04, I moved to Columbus and all this in the span of those first couple of years there. Yeah. And then fast forward a couple of years, well, fast forward a few months, <laughs> music won't pay the bills. Yeah, We're spending a lot of money on, at the time, we spent our own money on things like lawyers to do rec- recording contracts and management contracts and touring out of pocket, right? It was more like a promo expense. We produced a music video. I mean, all these things, right? Again, we invested into it as, as one would a business. And at the time I was working, Just, I had a part-time gig, a part-time job. I was working at a camera shop. Anyway, that wasn't going to work. I wasn't, one, going to be able to grow the business because of lack of funds, and two, support myself fully. So I took my creative talents and marketing degree, mashed those together, put together a book, a portfolio for copywriting, shopped it around in Columbus, and entered the world of the creative agency as a copywriter in Columbus, Ohio. Worked over the course of a year and a half at two different agencies. Spent a year and a half doing that. Quit again, the quote unquote traditional path, back to label full-time freelance advertising work and creative direction. And then ultimately that became the path to New York. I was, let's see, 2008, I was on a promo trip to New York for Megna, for the Megna Project. And I was minutes away from catching a cab to fly back to Columbus after being in New York for a week. I reflected on how much I got done in that week and how much progress we made in one week relative to the prior three to four months of, again, at the time, the internet was very different, right? And and state-to-state communication was very different. In that moment, I was standing on Houston and Allen exactly. in that moment. In uh, I, yeah, I decided I was coming back for good. And then three or four weeks later, I was back for a three-week stint. I spent six months splitting my time and then moved to New York.
0: Well, I've been there, by the way. I've been there in terms of running launching a music label investing a ton of money into it and not making that money back so yeah, like
1: so, you know you know yeah you know
0: because <laughs> it's like you so much of music is about marketing right so you invest so much in the music video in the photo shoots in the concerts that you might have to throw with your own dime at the time and and then you make 99 cents a download and it's not even like you keep the full 99 cents because right, apple takes exactly. some and spotify takes some and whatever so it's like Yeah, man, it's interesting. But then you ended up, I mean, that's your passion, right? Still.
1: Yeah, yeah. First love. Talib Kwali has this line, music is the air I breathe. I take that to heart. I really, it is my oxygen. Yeah.
0: For you, is it about performing? What about that sparks fire for you?
1: It's all of it, honestly. Performing certainly has its own kind of high and zone, and nothing can match that. Though a parallel between that, and I spent a lot of time Professionally now, full-time, I run partnerships, corp dev, and product marketing at the marketing software company. And I spend a lot of time presenting and pitching and high stakes meetings in big rooms with a lot of people. The rush from that is a direct parallel in some ways to the rush of performance. But yeah, so performance is part of it. The creation, the aspect of creating something from nothing and music being a language through which you can communicate. And deliver a message it's universal, I hate to be cliche, but it really is. I love every single aspect of it. I love also just listening to studying. I've always been a student of music. honestly, you put me in a studio and I lose track of time. I, I just like everything else fades. I get so zoned in, and it's everything I want to do. So all aspects of it to answer your question in short is what does it for me
2: that's great so. We could talk work stuff and I don't want to, frankly, but work pulled you in. That's how we met. We met on a rooftop in San Francisco through a work thing, through a partnership, and we found each other more interesting than the work stuff. But work pulled you back and you you still are. You're a working guy and now you're a family guy like us. How do you find time for the air you breathe?
1: Do you? I do. I do. I didn't for a long time. So 2009, I'm in New York full time. Kunal Merchant, we put out this project called Hindustani Gangster. It was a Jay-Z remix album. We remixed the American Gangster album using classic Bollywood inspired, originally produced tracks. Fairly high acclaim globally, picked up by the BBC, covered in GQ India. At the time, downloads were the thing. It wasn't streams, it was downloads. Our download numbers were pretty substantial. And it was definitely, we could have used it as 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 a catapult. At the exact same time, Marriage happened for both of us, fell in love, got married, beautiful thing. Of course, all of us on this pod know that. And we had started a business that, that picked up, boutique creative agency that picked up. And the confluence of all those events, and if I'm really honest about it, entering the phase of life that is getting married, starting a family. My wife is Egyptian, so Egyptian families coming together. The Back to maybe the the quote-unquote traditional or societal or cultural pressure I would be lying if I said I didn't feel some implied pressure to put more effort and energy into the quote unquote, more traditional, reliable. Yeah. To lock it down, play the safe cards, dependable path, right? Build a family, do all that. And so honestly, business took off for us. And I, I know all three of us fortunately know what that's like. And it took over and life happened in a very beautiful, blessed way, but life happened. And so for a long time, I actually stopped spending the time I should have always been spending on it. But a couple few years ago, I'll say I produced a project here and there, DJ'd here and there, but it was by no means the four or five days a week working on music that I had been used to. And so, yeah, I felt this gap in my soul, really. I mean, very honestly, I, I felt almost like my soul was lost. And so I said, I got to get back into it. And so I, I have. Fortunately, I've been able to carve out the time. And a lot of that means not sleeping as much as one should. <laughs> Actually, most of it means not sleeping as much as one should. But yeah, it's got to remain part of my life.
2: One question I want to ask about your music, and I've I've heard a few tracks here and there as you've like, you know you text me Spotify links, especially in the last couple of years that you've been kind of reawakening on this stuff. What's the role of language and culture in your music? Because it's not just hey, here's all the hip hop influence. For my youth, it's everything. It's this confluence of. Yeah. What is the role of language or you Egyptian, your culture in the music?
1: Yeah. So dating back to the very first songs I wrote and and or we wrote as, as the desert crew, it was rare. I mean, it was all predominantly in English. But if you go back to and I'll send it to you, you can't stream it anywhere because this is all pre-streaming. But if you go back to our first EP, our second EP, our first album, Arabic, and even other languages, right? Amir, part of the group, my cousin, half Korean. I spoke despite my detention getting, I was pretty decent and fluent in French for a time. So we would weave in other languages, write verses in or drop words in. And so it's always been part of it. Why would you do it though? Was it just to Easter egg it or was it for some significance? No, it was just, that's how we spoke. It's just how we lived, right? This multilingual existence. And so music, art imitates life, right? And the music we made was always real. It was always representative of, and to this day, right, representative of who I am, who any of the artists I work with are. If you listen to my latest track, The Golden Age, it starts with me reading four verses from a poem in Arabic that my cousin wrote. And the track is about Egypt for me. But despite that, it runs through everything I do, whether it's the rhythms, whether it's the sounds, whether it's the scales, when it comes to melodies, it's part of everything.
0: I'm going to ask you a nosy question. You mentioned that your wife is Egyptian as well. How did you guys meet?
1: We met through mutual friend. So I was in New York. A mutual friend of ours was going down to Washington, DC, where most of her crew of friends lived. Hella, my wife, being part of that crew. And she was going down for Hella's birthday celebration. And she's like, come with, roll along and meet my friends with no intentions. No, it was just It was totally just come hang. And my cousin lived in DC at the time and I had a lot of friends in DC. So I go down and the funny thing about this is I've spent so much time in clubs and observed so much happen in clubs from the vantage point of the DJ, which is a very interesting and unique vantage point from which to experience a club. And I had a rule that if and when I ever were to get married, I would not meet my wife at a club. It was like a hard rule of mine. <laughs> sure enough, I met Hela at a club because we walked into this club where they were all hanging out to celebrate her birthday. Anyway, so we met there. Nothing happened immediately. We were friends for about a year. And then a year later, almost exactly a year later, we you know that, that extended crew was all in New York hanging out to celebrate some other people's birthdays. And it just, you know, it sparked. And then we got married a year later. Was most of the crowd you hung
2: out with back then Egyptian?
1: No, no, not at all. I've always... Whether on like cultural cultural lines or even back in high school the the click lines that we all create or live with or come up with in high school, be it sports related or I was part of the drama program, I always liked to interact with and be part of all different groups, never any rules obviously in in terms of the friends i I choose, and so yeah, it's always been diverse though on that, I think I feel fortunate to have always had multiple groups of not just Egyptian friends, but Arab friends and or Muslim friends, right? Or broadly speaking, brown friends. Because to the extent you can relate and there are similarities, and I think that's been an important part of maintaining identity. And that goes, honestly, beyond brown, right? They're just minority friends, especially having gone to high school and college in, in very homogenous environments. That's always been super important. Do you find, I mean, you've been in
2: New York for a while. Like me, you've you've kind of traded these kind of homogenous zones for these massive
1: diverse zones, right?
2: Have you found the way you've been, I don't know, accepted or viewed by people different in one or the other?
1: By zones, you mean geographies?
2: Yeah, yeah. I had a friend visit from Ohio once, unrelated to your Ohio, right? just a, a buddy that I worked with in Cincinnati, and he stayed in the Midwest. I'd been in New York for a few years, and he came and he had, I was at work, so he had to like kind of do a few things on his own. And he was like, yeah, the diversity just kind of punches you in the face, And he meant that in a good way because he was like, and no one kind of notices me, right? Versus in Ohio, he stands out and doesn't have to justify it, but he's he's constantly aware of sticking out and walking differently and acting differently because he wants to fit in. But he didn't feel that here. And so I guess, have you noticed any of that difference or do you behave differently here
1: versus there? So without question, and I think I would ask the question back to you guys, actually, I won't say without question. I think we've all experienced this. At certain points in life, you almost, you inherently behave differently, right? Whether it's like back to what I said about different circles of community or behave slightly differently here versus when I'm in Egypt with my family there. There have been times in my life where that's been the case. Over the years, I've made it a point to erase that difference and just be me everywhere. I think that's really important. That said, interesting, I was just talking to my parents about this the other day. I don't feel at home here in my hometown. And I haven't for a long time. I didn't feel that growing up. Why? Because because it was home. Because of exactly what you just said, right? New York, above all places in the world, is the one place I feel more at home than anywhere else. Because of what New York is, because the diversity punches you in the face, because you can and are, right? A lot of people are who they are, right? At the most real fundamental level. And that's even more so than when I'm in Egypt, by the way, right? I feel at home in Egypt to a certain extent. But I can be more me in New York than I can be in Egypt. And I consider my Egyptian identity, roots, traits, I'm fluent in the language. I consider that really strong, relatively speaking. Despite that, New York is more home to me than anywhere else.
2: Sounds like something I've observed with my own parents. When my dad's in India and I've been there with him twice, but once in his adult, he's not of there anymore. Speaks the language, versed in the culture. But why don't you feel at home in Egypt, even though it's everything around you that you know?
1: I do. I do. I don't feel as at home in Egypt as I do in New York, I think is the key point. I wasn't born there. I didn't grow up there. I honestly, roots are strong. Upbringing is strong, right? And and important. I wasn't raised in a, you would consider a very typically traditional Egyptian household, right? It was 50-50 max Arabic English and over the years, it probably aired more in favor of of English. My parents, having come from London to the States on their way from Egypt, had already, I don't want to say, yeah, assimilated. I don't mean assimilated in any positive or negative sort of way. Imitating my dad as a kid came with a British accent, not an Egyptian accent. I'll say that. (laughs) Interesting. Yeah. Anytime we retell jokes or try to talk like my dad as kids, we always give him a British accent. So. Maybe that's the best way to set that in the context. But over the years, I just adopted and grabbed onto and tried to nourish and grow deeper within me the roots and made Egypt what I call back home. Even though it's, again, it's not the most I've spent there is three straight months. Now I've been there almost every year in my life. But yeah, so it is home. It's just New York is. Have you taken your kids back? I haven't yet. We were going to this year. That's obviously not going to happen so soon, soon, God willing. Yeah.
0: Well, safe. Are you ready for speed round?
1: Yeah, I feel like man, we've zoomed through this. Yeah. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Speed. It was. It was.
2: Here's the irony. Here's the irony and the secret I'm going to reveal to you. The conversation goes so fast, and speed round is the worst marketing because these
0: questions (laughs) actually take longer. We have noticed that. Yeah. It's like, yeah. yeah, we'll be like, "Oh, that was a great conversation." Great. So we designed these questions thinking it would take everybody ten seconds to answer, but so you'll see. This is going to be the non-speed speed round. Here we go.
1: All right. Cool. Hit me.
0: What's one thing about you no one expects?
1: Well, now in quarantine, apparently, it's the thick mustache that Ruman saw surprisingly on the Zoom. But I don't know. I'm an open book, generally speaking. There's not a lot. I'll say, in the industry, actually, in the industry and this is shame on me for letting it fade away in my personal brand, most people don't know much at all about the musical side of me.
0: Well, they do now, don't they?
2: What's a book or a movie that has characters that you really relate to?
1: This is going to sound super cliche, but it's true. The Godfather was like scripture to me growing up. I'm not Italian, right? No Italian roots no Mafia roots in my family either. I'm no mob ties, but the bond of family and that aspect of it and again, it's so cliche, but I used to watch it once a year as a rule, I used to watch the trilogy, yes, the trilogy, even the third one, once a year to refresh just to refresh and because it's a kick-ass movie right I love the movies. but the Godfather, that's what first comes to mind
0: what What is your favorite mom dish?
1: An Egyptian dessert called Bespusa.
0: Ooh,
1: what is that? A is made, different people make it slightly differently, but the way we make it, the ingredients are cream of wheat or farina, yogurt, sugar, butter, goodness. Bake it. Yeah, bake it. Put a little imprint in the top. Put a slivered almond on it. Cover it with syrup. Let the syrup soak in and then enjoy.
0: So you know, it's, I feel like- It sounds like almost like a flan consistency or like a baked pudding
1: consistency. No, it's like, have you ever had a honey cake or a semolina yeah. cake? Yeah, yeah. it's yeah. It's, it's basically like that.
0: Cool.
2: Yeah. One of my favorite things, like backpacking around the Middle East, Indian sweets, I hate. Or I grew up hating because they were far too sweet. Now I have an appreciation for like a nibble here and there, right? Because I can't get them. But the thing I loved about backpacking around the Middle East always was walking by the sweet shops. and This is going to sound weird, but seeing the bees buzzing around it because I was like, oh, oh, that's, yeah. the oh that's the good shit. That's the good shit.
0: The honey, like just the drizzled honey over anything. Yeah. like, right? Middle East really sweet, yeah. sweet. Mm, yeah. So good.
2: All right. What's your least favorite food?
1: My least favorite food? Oh, this might be my chance to pick on your pizza habits.
0: <laughs>
2: Go well, for it. You did your homework and listen to one episode and you're going to kill is, us on this you're one. You're about <laughs> to make an enemy safe.
0: Is, Just let is, me know.
1: Wait, is is, is that later. allowed in speed? Oh, yeah. Yeah, of course.
2: <laughs> it's your show too,
1: buddy. No, we could have a whole podcast devoted to pizza and you guys could take your English muffin and bagel pizzas and I'll stop there.
2: No, no. Hang on. Hang on. It's kind of like, look, I like Chipotle, but I don't call it Mexican food. So it's English muffin pizza in name only for the kids. I got to have a proper pie. You'll appreciate this. If we had a guest, someone you and I both know on the show, and his least favorite food was pizza. stop. No. What? And he's a New Yorker. And I'm like, I'm calling the mayor. You're out. <laughs> I'm having you deported, buddy.
0: <laughs> yeah. Remin was pretty upset about that pretty upset
1: about that. I jest though, I jest. I think, look, bread, sauce, cheese, and whatever else you want to put on it, it's amazing no matter what. My least favorite food, I'll give you a good one, which bucks a trend or a stereotype, lamb.
0: Shut up. Yeah. That is a surprise to hear it coming from you.
1: I am calling
2: the Arab League. We are revoking <laughs> Go for <it>. your membership.
1: <laughs> Go for it. Yeah, it's not really my least favorite food, but it's surprising. Our first night home here in, at my parents' house, My dad made really, really good lamb chops and I had a bite and that's it. I didn't want any more.
0: And in all four, so like lamb curries, lamb.
1: No, so I think I'm just picky. I'm picky. Like a lamb chop, a good lamb rib chop all day. Lamb curry. Yes, though less so. Not all day. But I also like, I just love to eat and I'll eat anything really except for pork. Cool. Who
0: is someone out there that you would want to interview on a podcast?
1: I'm only allowed one. I'll give you two. I'll give you two. Two. Okay. <laughs> two.
0: But yeah, but that's you have to the interview them at the same time now. Your job <laughs> just got yeah. harder.
1: Oh, interview them at the same time.
0: Yeah. They, like they have to be in the same room or in the same discussion together.
1: <laughs> in the same discussion. Dude, we're making this up. We're just making it harder. <laughs> yeah. And they have to be alive. And they have, have to be wearing to be stripes
2: and polka
0: dots.
1: <laughs> someone living?
2: No, it can be anybody.
0: It could be someone dead. So it could be a dead person and an alive person at the same time.
1: Okay. Two people, Bob Marley and Oma Consume. Om for those who don't know, I think everyone knows Bob Marley, is the greatest singer of all time in the Arab world, Egyptian, classic. You've talked about her so much to me. I I would never have known her
2: name if it wasn't for you. And is that just in the Egyptian world or in the Arab world?
1: Worldwide, I would say. Her music's been sampled ad nauseum by non-Arab artists, but she's the greatest ever in the Arab world, widely considered.
2: So last question, are you ready to say? Yeah. What does being a model minority mean for you?
1: It means two things, maybe three, but two of them overlap. Now that I'm a father, right? First and foremost, it means instilling the pride that I have in my roots and the lack of any shame whatsoever to be who I am and represent who I am and where I'm from in any environment in my kids. That's one, first and foremost, and and at this point, most important, because we're all parents. That's at this point, that's what I pass on. That's my legacy, number one. Number two, this overlaps, but more broadly, beyond my kids, I feel, and man, we didn't even talk about Fenn Magazine, another venture of mine that I'll be bringing back soon. I feel an overwhelming responsibility to make the communication of, pride in, elevation of and stature of or image of culture easier, more accessible, more allowable, more respected, and more central for the generation that follows. Again, beyond just just my kids, and and then number three is just as minorities, we're always in position to represent more than just ourselves, right? Especially in our professional lives anywhere and everywhere, right? And so being that representative and representing truly and accurately, and that may mean different things for different people. I don't say that in a, with any preconceived notions that carry that with me as I know you both do every day. Cool,
2: man. Well, say, thanks for taking the time and sharing your story, where you've been and where you're going.
1: Thank you. I want to interview you guys now. I, I, All if right. we could go into the, the next hour. <laughs>
0: you're going to start a podcast? I'll be on it.
1: All right, cool. Cool. You guys are <laughs> you guys are invitees one and two. You you Amazing. come before Bob Marley and Omokatsu. Nice. So
0: special. Thank you. Thanks so Thank much. You,
1: man. Thanks. thanks, guys.
0: And that's our show.
1: Like what you heard? Please subscribe,
2: leave a review, and a five-star rating on your favorite podcasting platform.
0: Now more than ever, people need to be hearing these stories. Please share our show with a friend or three. Want to learn more or got something to
2: share? Visit modmypod.com or email us. Hi, mom at modmypod.com.
0: You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at modminpod. We'd love to hear from you.
2: Now, here's a preview of our next episode
1: when I was a kid, I used to get told, why are you trying to talk white? What does that mean? I'm just speaking. Or when white kids get told, why are you trying to act black? Well, what does that mean? There isn't a way to be or behave that's connected to a color in my view, but I think there are some cultural norms that exist. And I I wouldn't say that I was being disingenuous, but I did feel there were parts of my culture and parts of myself that I couldn't bring to the table because they might be judged negatively. Now, whether or not I felt that was correct or not, obviously I didn't and still don't.
2: That's it for now. I've been Roman Segel, And I'm still Sharon Lee Tony. Remember, we're all modern minorities out there.
0: We'll talk to you soon.
3: The headlines remind us daily. The world is a dangerous place. The elites in charge say everything's fine. Stop noticing. But you know better